Blog Talk Radio. Hello there. It's that time again. Time for helping behaviorally challenging students. Dr. Ross Green here coming to you live from the offices of Lives in the Balance here in Portland, Maine. And um, it's the first Monday of the month. No, we do not have any April Fool's jokes in store for you, but we do have the educators panel. Uh, It's on the first Monday of every month. And, um, well, by golly, that's what we're going to do today, the educators panel. Now, we only have one of our uh, panel members with us at the moment, uh, Carol, calling to us from British Columbia. How are you today? I'm doing very well. How are you? I am well, and I understand that uh, schools are out in B.C. still. Oh, yes. yeah. Just, it's the last day, and the sun is shining, so it's, it's very uh, fortuitous for us today. How nice. Um, good. And so it's just going to be you and me together for now. And then if Tom and Nina call in, well, by golly, we'll have a uh, four-way discussion. Um, must be nice. Uh, done any important thinking while you've been out of school? That's, you know, often we're so busy during when we're in school that we, you know, don't really even have time to think. But sometimes people do get a chance to think when they are on vacation. Any um, inspirations for us? Uh, well, you know, what I find is with uh, with spring break, it's usually just a chance to kind of charge up the batteries because things can get, like you said, you know, when you're working and things are in full throttle mode, sometimes it's hard to, uh, well, you kind of get run down a little bit and, and uh, you lose focus sometimes with the what our, some of our district administrators have a, a phrase they call the tyranny of the urgent. And so uh, being mm. able to kind of step back and, and refocus on some of your priorities and set some plans for uh, for the last term of school can be very, very helpful. What do you have planned? Well, I, we did some work. I think we talked about it um, in the winter term. Um, we did some work at our... And by the way, before you go on, we now yep. have, I believe, Nina on with us. Yes? Yes. Hello. Hi, Hi Nina. Nina. How are you? Good. How are you? Nina, you're going to be a little jealous, but... Carol has been on vacation for a while, and she was about to tell us what she's got planned for the rest of the school year as it relates to her desire to um, overcome the tyranny of the urgent. Wow. Yes, I am jealous. (laughs) I wish that was my phrase, but it's not. Okay. Uh, I was impressed. (laughs) Go ahead, Carol. Yeah, well, we we did some work with our staff um, before the break, like from between the win- well over our winter term, I guess, um, to kind of redefine some of our common beliefs and understandings about um, behavior and discipline and and the appropriate types of of responses when kids are are struggling. And um, it's not. I would love to say that it's 100% um, focused around solving problems collaboratively, but I, I believe it's kind of a it's definitely um, a major component of of some of the proactive work that we want to do with kids. And so my goals for the last term are to um, reestablish um, the, the, well, reestablish our use of the ALSUP during our school-based teams where we're, we're working with 
um, members from across the support services within our school when we're working with some kids with behavioral challenges. And then I'm trying to, I'm still trying to kind of redefine where my niche is in, in that process, where how do I balance when um, students are sent to the office for a disciplinary referral or a behavioral referral, how do I get to that point where the 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 process is being used as a proactive rather than reactive approach? So that's kind of where I'm still trying to refine where I fit in that whole thing because I still do believe that with a lot of kids, the the process is best done at the ground level with the with the classroom teacher um, because often those are the people who are front line where and when the students are having their their concerns and and they're the ones that are most in a position to be able to come up with a collaborative solution with the student that they can um, implement rather than it being me and the student having discussion, proposing some solutions, and then having to go to the teacher and try and see if that's going to work for them. So just still refining that process through through the end of the year so that we're ready to kind of kick off next year with a more cohesive approach. That sounds fabulous. I can I can tell you it may not be applicable to your situation, but I was talking with one of the assistant principals involved in our project here in Maine. And by the way, Tom has joined us. Welcome to the program, Tom. Thank you. Um, he's, he, he's still, his teachers have largely now been trained in how to do Plan B. And some of them are still sending students to him. And I find that that's what comes first, getting people good at Plan B because now he's in a position to say to them, if a kid should happen to be sent to them, to him, have you done an ALSIP on the kid yet? Have you tried Plan B with the kid yet? And that is sort of the final stage, I find, of dramatically reducing discipline referrals to the office. But what comes before being able to say that is having people who can actually do plan B and know how to use the ALSA. So feels to me like one comes before the other. Tom and Nina, either of you want to weigh in on that or Carol, any other thoughts on that? No, I'd like to hear kind of where where other where Tom and Nina are. I, I know it's different with having more full scale implementation, but even just where do you when when you do end up being the one that's taking point on a plan B conversation, how do you um I don't know, where do you fit that in, in the whole process? Obviously, it's we talked about before I was doing too much emergency plan B, and so it was difficult to have any um, solutions that were going to be long-lasting um, or really that effective. So where do you, maybe, Tom, if that happens to you, if people are still sending kids to you for quote-unquote discipline, how do you fit that in if you are going to be having the conversation with the student? Well, I think that, that it goes back to the piece about... Um, as Ross alluded to, when, when, when the whole culture of a school is on the same page, I, I certainly think of collaborative problem solving as being very similar to having an aligned curriculum. So if we have an aligned response to behavioral issues, then we can have very quick and effective conversations. Um, when instructional practices in the curriculum are aligned, then we can have very effective, quick conversations about uh, uh, instruction and, and the instructional practices and the actual curriculum. So with collaborative problem solving, if I'm working with a student and I, and I listen to them and hear their point of view and work with them, and then I say to the teacher, this is so-and-so's point of view as they shared it to me, and I express these concerns, 
And this is kind of where we were at with the solution, but we need to run it by you. Is there a time that the three of us could sit down and talk about your concerns? Sometimes I use that approach because I find that it's really difficult sometimes for teachers to get time to meet with kids. Yep. So I found that, that having you know social work guidance myself kind of at a high level of awareness of how to use the, the, uh, the model and then, then using uh, um, uh, the awareness of the staff to kind of splice into the conversation that that can be incredibly effective because people know what to expect. They know, they know that a conversation is going to occur. They know that it's not just going to be, you're saying it for recess, that's it. They know that we're going to talk about problems. And uh, I have found, too, that just in general, the staff that I'm working with right now is very, very in tune with the kids' needs. So it's a lot easier to get movement. Uh, some of the high school staff or middle school staffs can be a little more challenging to get them to kind of see what a lot of people would consider to be an emotionally developmental model where we're, we're teaching the kids how to, how to develop emotionally and express their concerns and perspectives and actually coaching them through that. Uh, it can be a little trickier at times with some people at the higher levels. And even at the lower elementary levels, you can end up you know, with people that are, they need to come to school and just learn. But I think that if you can break through that barrier and get people on board that kids do well if they can, then the, the, the next step is, is way easier, which is kind of the step we're discussing today. Nani, you want to weigh in? Sure. I, I agree with Tom that that's what I do as well. When kids are sent to me, I, I, you know, I often do the plan B with the student, but as well have, say that we need to check in with the teacher. And sometimes I just... You know, I, I have to have those children come in the moment because teachers aren't able to stop what they're doing or find, having difficulty finding time or a lot of times a problem might be arising in, at recess or lunch where they're not exactly you know, the one they're having the problem with, but you know, so I see myself as, as the one that can be, you know, take on that role. But then we have to go back to the recess teacher or go back to the classroom teacher and hear their concerns and uh, make a time for us all to meet together. So again, I think the struggle here is often time, as I know it is everywhere, so trying to be creative to support classroom teachers so that they feel like they do have time to come and, and do a Plan B conversation is you know, such a priority for me. And that, that's my job, I feel like, to find, find people, to give other people release time to come and do a Plan B conversation. But just as Carol is saying, I also really trying to make a priority for the rest of the year to use LSEP and to ask that first question when, when somebody comes. It's what, have they done an LSEP together? Have they talked about it at a team meeting using the LSEP instead of having those conversations when you're talking about things that you can't change? And I think the staff has made such great gains in that area of focusing on what we can do instead of talking about what's out of our control uh, because I think we got stuck in that way for a while of talking about things that we just we have no control over and now we've really tried to think outside of the box, think creatively and solving problems collaboratively is a perfect match to kind of that mindset of thinking outside of the box. So can I ask So Nina Carol's been oh, sorry, go ahead Carol. I'm curious as to to what degree um each of uh, Tom and Nina's schools have have been involving parents in um some of those conversations and plans because, um, you know, with, even with the LSIP, there are um, unsolved problems that are based at school, but there also can be unsolved problems that are based at home that do affect school. So um, just curious 
it's it's really not something that I've done a lot of. I can think of a couple of situations where we've had a team meeting with the teacher, the student, and parents involved in um, having the Plan B discussion. Just wondering if you, where you go with that. Well, I know for me, with my students that are more challenging, I definitely involve the parent and uh, meet many times, especially when the child's having a really difficult time, that I involve the parent um, you know, as much as possible. So in many situations, in some situations that's not possible, but I've, you know, I've definitely used that model uh, because they can support the process as well and especially kind of back it up as at, at home instead of being overly punitive for what's happening at school. So that's been, that communication has been really important for, for you know, challenging children. Do you ever get pushback from parents that, that um, you know, they, they expect more more punishment? No. In fact, I get the reverse pushback, which is why aren't more people doing this better and more often? And and how do you get um, schools to engage in this process? It's incredible. The uh, the positive feedback from parents is almost totally unanimous. Yeah, I've I've had surprisingly a lot of feedback as well. Um, yeah. But you know, there there are some families with the mindset of, well, just do do whatever you need to do to them to fix them, or do whatever you need to do to them to you know, at home he knows that you know it's not allowed, and so you know, do what you got to do. And I, and it's it's a small number of of people, and I don't let it dissuade me. But I was just curious if that was something that you run into as well. I sometimes get pushback from parents of children that are not challenging. So that I think that's harder sometimes for them to embrace the model uh, when they don't have experiences with having a difficult child or, or a child that has some challenging times. So that's more, and again, it's a small number, but but for the children that I'm working so closely with the parents uh, that are having a tough time at school, they are very grateful and see the change. And um, yeah, I think that's probably the biggest fact, they see the change. Yep. By the way, there are videos on the Lives in the Balance website of some of the parents and in Tom's and Nina's schools. Um, it was on the home page um, originally, but now you'd have to click on the 2013 annual conference link on the left-hand side and go to the videos for the 2012 conference to see them. But they are outstanding. Um, and it's film footage of parents in both buildings talking about the model, I guess what you all are saying is that whether it's the parent of a not-so-challenging kid who hasn't had to find out more about behavioral challenges and different ways to work with behaviorally challenging kids because they've never had to, or if it's a parent of a behaviorally challenging kid who simply still has some traditional ideas that may not be panning out very well, um, there's always going to be some folks, I suppose, who need to be provided with information about what we now know about behaviorally challenging kids and different ways to go about helping them. That's, that, that is an um, endeavor that will outlive our, all of our lifetimes, even though we're trying to get the word out as well as we can. But I think that, that that's kind of the, the – or I guess I would say in addition to that, that that is the crux of the philosophical shift that collaborative problem-solving um, asks of people. So 
I think that that um, the hard part is for some kids, traditional discipline does work. I'm not saying it's the best way to do it, but I'm saying that that it does work to set some limits, have clear expectations, set some limits and hold them accountable, and they do fine. And so some parents will say, well, why should I do this instead of that? And my response typically is because it, it collaborative problem solving promotes the emotional development of your child in a way that just having flat-out consequences doesn't. I'm not going to you know, ever espouse that I don't sometimes just have consequences for my kids. Sometimes we just have to set a limit and, and, and deal with it. But when it's pervasive and ongoing, we certainly always sit down with them and use the Plan B model and talk about it. And it has been incredibly effective because they feel heard, the adult feels heard, but it is critical not to do it as much as possible in a crisis. So the proactive part is the key. Um, but anyway, I, I think that once parents start to see that it promotes the, the emotional development of their child, they start to be a lot more open to the conversation. Well, and of course, the other sales pitch, and I'm dealing with a... Um a, a selected sample here. The people who are seeking my assistance are people for whom the traditional approach hasn't gotten the job done anyways. So that's, that's an easier sales pitch. But the reality is, if the, you know, uh, in, in, in the traditional approach and solving problems collaboratively, uh, in both instances, you're setting limits. The big question is, if a kid isn't responding to the limits that are being set, what's the best way to deal with the situation? And um, in some, people are going to, especially emergent situations, they're going to impose the will and set the limits even more firmly, and some kids are able to respond to that. Um, that tends not to be the type of kid who we're seeing in the school discipline program a lot, and it tends not to be the kid who is having their parents seek out help from a mental health professional, because those are the kids who are responding to firm limits being set by adhering to the limits. Life gets much more interesting when the limits are being set and a kid isn't responding, and then the firm, even more firmer limit being set, the adult insisting on the kid adhering to the limit, when that creates things that are worse, then it's frequently time to think of something different to do. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, I always ask you all, uh, and Carol has been on vacation, so she's had an opportunity to think about how she wants the end of the school year to end. But um, Nina and Tom, do you want to weigh in on that as well? And I don't think you all have had your uh, spring vacation yet, if I'm not mistaken. I think uh, Maine uh, gets the ball rolling on vacation again in a few weeks. Um, so, Carol, you're ahead of us. Um, but, Tom and Nina, any thoughts even before vacation about uh, how you want to end the school year and continue the progress that's been made on solving collab problems collaboratively in your buildings? Uh, I think for us, we're even, this is the time of year we're even thinking about next year. So, um, you know, we've been trying to even to decide how to set up some different structures and things in place to, you know, use solve problems collaboratively even on a wider scale um, for next year. Again, we had recess duty teachers this year that allowed uh, teachers not to have duties. So this is kind of a trial year for that, and next year we can even tweak that more where uh, grade-level teams will be able to use ALSEP more regularly. Um, 
So I guess in planning for next year, I'm also going to be able to have an opportunity to have one of our, our most amazing ed techs who has been using the model and, and watching and learning and, and a role model for so, so many of us. She's going to be able to have a role next year where she's uh, – solving problems collaboratively in her own space and be able to work with some of our most challenging students. So I'm excited about the possibilities and kind of the structures at this point. And we're also our goal, our, our uh, leadership team is going to sponsor a kind of a, we're doing a night for the PTO and for parents about the professional development we've been doing over the past few years and one of our focus is going to be on on CPS and what what our training has been and what we've seen it do for the school. And again, that kind of goes back to p parents that have had questions and asked what we do for discipline. Uh, so I'm hoping that that's a proactive and a positive night so that everybody can hear hear of what we've been doing. That's fantastic. Tom? Yeah, I'm excited. Yeah, I'm looking forward to uh, uh, kind of just continuing to have we have so much consistency that's been created at our school in the last three years, uh, um, not just with collaborative problem solving, but also academically and with the curriculum. So I just continue to look forward to being able to solve problems in the context of structures that are effective. So having the curriculum aligned, the, the instructional practices relatively aligned, and having collaborative problem solving in place kind of lays the foundation for us to do the good work of helping kids to be successful at school. Uh, not just academically, but socially and emotionally. So I look forward to another year of just kind of moving deeper into the work, having laid the foundation over the last three years, uh, doing some really difficult work to get everything set up, and it just keeps running smoother and smoother. It's really fun. But more importantly, I'm, I'm really just thinking about snowboarding in April break because the snow has been amazing. So it's hard to get my mind off that right now, Ross. Well, I'll, I'll, I, I'm not. I'm actually not praying for cold weather for the next two weeks so that you can go snowboarding. But no. maybe there will still. I'm, I'm actually hoping it warms up, but I don't want to mess up your vacation. Um, <laughs> may, maybe it'll be cold on the mountain. Exactly. Tom, do you have, and Nina and Carol, do you have students that you know are coming back that you've been using the model with, and that you're already thinking to yourselves? This is a kid who we would like to make even more progress with next year. And any thoughts about what it would look like to move beyond what you've done this year um, with those individual? I know, Tom, you're talking about structures. Um, any individual kids that you all are thinking about as well? Oh, yes, absolutely. I think even today was, you know, I have, was quite a day, and I think the, the day after Easter was tough for some kids, so it just reminded me a lot of um, you making sure that we know kids can have setbacks and tough days and that it doesn't mean that all our work has been for nothing and that they're going to fall back you know, tomorrow, uh, it's that tomorrow's going to be a new day and a fresh day, and it did make me think of next year and, you know, how always that first few weeks is always tough for the students with behavioral challenges, uh, but making sure that we start being proactive now so that the setup for next year is um, what they've been getting now that's been successful. So, you know, it's about placement, it's about rooms, all those things that we've been doing that have made such a big difference for kids, especially if we have one child that is just, people are just amazed by how well he's doing. And in November, he couldn't even be in the classroom at all and so aggressive and having such a hard time. And now he he blends into the classroom. 
he he's gotten what he needs, and we've taken such a, a gentle pace with him and non-punitive, and just giving him giving him what he needs and solving problems and being proactive. And today he had a rough day, so that just reminded me of what that we need to continue what we're doing for him, but also not to expect perfection, because I think that's we can get really excited and see that kids are doing well. And then when we have days like this where some some of the kids had a tough time, you can get defeated, but remembering that this, that that's okay, that there'll be tomorrow's a new day and that they'll be back on track. Sounds like a good perspective. Carol, got any kids in mind? Um, I'm actually thinking, We I, I found out just before the break that uh, we have a, a young man who's going to be returning to our school next year. He was last with us when he was in grade one, and that was my first year um, as a principal. And uh, he was in grade one that year and, and had a really, really tough time. He had had lots of um, uh, developmental issues as a young child and some trauma and it was the same thing he was that Nina was kind of talking about a, a child who really um doesn't have the skills to handle the demands of a classroom even though it was you know grade 1 and and fairly um you know developmentally appropriate and uh so he he left us and went to another school for a couple of years and i found out that he's coming back and and i spoke with one of the workers who f- was fortunate enough um he had a support worker who um was with us when the year that he was in grade 1 and then was transferred actually just by chance, to the same school where this boy had moved to. And he's been working with him, continuing with the model he, he uh, with, um, with this young guy for the, the next two years. So he's coming back to us next year as a fourth grader. And um, from what, I've, what I understand, how things have been going using the model, he is able to be in the classroom. Um, academics are still not a, a really high focus in terms of, of what his goals are, but just his ability to... to be in the classroom, and, and so what I'm thinking about is how to use the model to help ease the transition, to to kind of be proactive in some of the things, finding out some of the things that work for him and don't work in the in the school and classroom and playground setting, and helping to kind of establish some of those plans right off the bat. Outstanding. So I think that we we have uh, a number of students. You know, there's 280. Six or 76 kids here, depending on how the enrollments are going at any given time, and there are uh, a number of students who are working to solve problems, and uh, I'm looking forward to, for us at the kindergarten level in particular, particular, I love knowing the kids at the beginning of first grade, so when they come through the door, we kind of know their personalities and who they are. The interesting part with uh, K2 is that the kids tend to change a lot between kindergarten and first and sometimes also first to second, and sometimes they come through the door uh, a lot more capable of solving problems independently, and, and sometimes they come through actually more challenging. Typically, they come through more able to solve problems. So what we have to work on is being aware of where the student was at when we ended the school year, keeping an awareness of that, but an open mind that things might have changed as well. And I, I, I notice also that the same kind of thing happens in uh, um you know, the middle level and sometimes between, you know, like the sophomore and junior year of high school, there are kind of like a couple of years within the whole range of K-12 that students tend to come back, uh, uh, you know, more developed, I guess, is a way to put it. uh, So it's just incredible. There's so many levels of change in K-2. It's just amazing to watch them them, uh, evolve over just a three-year period. No, it's so true. I think here, being pre-K through third, the same thing. It's amazing. Yeah, I can watch. Look at my third graders and just 
you know, see uh, over time what they've been able to accomplish. And but this, I, I totally agree also that you never know. Sometimes kids that have been seemingly doing okay or just kind of maybe having just a few problems here and there can also kind of crash in second grade and they, or in third grade, and that that can also take you by surprise. So you're right; you never know in fall, you know what's gonna, what's going to happen when they when they walk back through the door. So um, can I change? Can I change? Switch gears on us here in the last fifteen minutes. Sure. sure. Yeah. There's a um, big deal being made in the New York Times today about some statistics that were just released by the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Um, and you all have been in school all day, probably not checking headlines. But the headline is. ADHD now seen in 11% of U.S. children as diagnoses rise. Nearly one in five high school-age boys in the United States and 11% of school-age children overall have received a medical diagnosis of attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, according to new data from the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. The rates reflect a market rise over the last decade and could fuel growing concern among many doctors that the ADHD diagnosis and its me- medication are overused in American children. The figures show that an estimated 6.4 million children ages 4 through 17 had received an ADHD diagnosis at some point in their lives, a 16% increase till, since 2007 and a 53% rise in the past decade. About two-thirds of those with a current diagnosis receive prescriptions for stimulant medications like Ritalin or Adderall. Uh, One more quote from this article. These are astronomical numbers. I'm floored, said Dr. William Graff, a pediatric neurologist in New Haven and a professor at the Yale School of Medicine. He added, mild symptoms are being diagnosed so readily, which goes well beyond the disorder and well beyond the zone of ambiguity, to pure enhancement of children who are otherwise healthy. I'm wondering, this is interesting for clinicians perhaps, but I'm wondering if this is, um, let me just read one other quote. There's no way that one in five high school boys has ADHD, says James Swanson, a professor of psychiatry at Florida International University and one of the primary ADHD researchers in the last 20 years. If we start treating children who do not have the disorder with stimulants, a certain percentage are going to have problems that are predictable. Some of them are going to end up with abuse and dependence of the drugs. And with all those pills around, how much of that actually goes to friends? Some studies have said it's about 30%. So this is interesting. Um, one more quote. Dr. Ned Hallowell, who's a good friend of mine, actually so is Jim Swanson, who for years would reassure skeptical parents by telling them that Adderall and other stimulants were safer than aspirin, said last week, I regret the analogy and won't be saying that again. And while he still thinks that many children with ADHD continue to go unrecognized and untreated, he said the high rates demonstrate how the diagnosis is being handed out too freely. What do you all think? And does information like this, first of all, does it resonate with you all being in schools? And and secondly, 
What do you make of it? One of my first thoughts, Ross, was I was reading an article this morning um, that I think may be, I don't know, relevant in the discussion. Is it uh, basically? Is, is it was the headline was "Is sitting the new smoking?" And I'm wondering if the demands, the academic demands that are being placed on young children, are causing uh, some educators to be frustrated with typical childlike behaviors that may look like ADHD. Hmm. I think schools are tough; can be tough places for children, and especially for our young boys. Uh, we've talked a lot about that here at school about how how we need to change some of what we're doing for for our children that are exhibiting some of those symptoms that are that could be you know, compared to ADHD and um, to what we can do to, to change and to accommodate uh, the, the children that are struggling. And I think uh, the collaborative problem solving is the perfect match to be able to to help those kids because it isn't you know it isn't always a diagnosis of whatever it is that they're exhibiting, but those lagging skills of being able to sit still or pay attention or, and what can we do as a school to accommodate? Because it can't be that all our boys here are have attention um, diagnoses, but so what what can we do as a staff? And we've been doing some professional development about boys and young boys in school, so that's kind of what makes me think of. But it also worries me because I do, just as the article says, there are children that need the medication and it, and it makes them be able to access problem solving, so it's kind of that balance that uh, you need to have. Tom? I think this is a, a, a very, very challenging question to truly answer accurately. Kids come to school totally stimulated by uh, video games, technology, um, just constant uh, stimulation. And then we expect them to sit in class and and learn, oftentimes um, with instructional techniques that are uh, um, not congruent with the way that they learn. And so we've worked really hard at my school to make learning fun and engaging um, because we're aware that what we're up against is is real. And I often wonder um, if the rise in diagnosis of ADHD is more a, a rise in the diagnosis of the times than of uh, an actual indicator of a mental health issue. I'm certainly convinced that uh, you know, habits of mind affect us. So when my son is snowboarding at a very high rate of speed these days, which is challenging for me, um, he's incredibly focused. Uh, I notice that when he's not engaged at something that requires his attention at that level, he's not as focused. So my question is, what percentage of his day is he spending focused like that versus not focused? When you're playing with Legos or Lincoln Logs and things like that, and it's tactile and you're building and thinking and creating, it's pretty engaging. When you turn on a video game and it does everything for you, are we teaching our brains the habit of disengagement? I just don't know. I ponder these questions, as you can probably imagine, quite deeply often. And I'm worried about it because as we look to engage in technology in our schools, it begs the question to be asked, what, what relationship will technology have with our learning in schools? And what part should it have versus supplanting human interaction in, in the cultivation of creativity? 
I really think that our society, the cultivation of creativity is going to be the critical skill in our society. And that's why having conversations and solving problems as a, as a team or collaboratively is critical for the development of not only a person's emotional self-awareness, but for the ability to solve problems and be creative about the process and, and what to do about it. It's kind of like a, a, a lot of bang for the buck. And, and I, I worry about um, misdiagnosis because our society is asking people to be ADD. I mean, how many people are walking somewhere, talking on their cell phone, on speakerphone, while looking at their email? Hey, that's me. Right. I, I knew that. I was trying to set you up wrong. So I just wanna, you know. You know. So you were Ed McMahon to Mike Johnny Carson, yes? Yes, that's what I was going now, for. Now we've lost half of the <laughs> listening audience, of course. See, Sorry, I, Tom, I think you're raising a very interesting point, and that is that uh, life outside of school does tend to involve a great deal of passive stimulation. Um, those of us who are traditional wouldn't mind if it was stimulation of the physically active variety, but there's a lot of stimulation these days that doesn't involve physical activity. It's more passive stimulation. And so that's a brain that becomes habituated to a certain level of stimulation that is now sitting in a school classroom that can't come close to matching the level of stimulation. And number one, that's number one. Number two, may not even be trying. But I, So I think that's one piece of it. I think another piece of it, and this by no means is this 100%, and I, I'm interested in hearing what you all think of this. I think we are demanding skills of kids earlier and earlier in development as well. And this goes back to, um, uh, not that this is a bad thing, but this goes back to standards and how we have come to assess whether we are meeting those standards. And what I'm talking about now is high-stakes testing. But I think that um, we are demanding developmental skills of kids earlier and earlier. And as one might expect, developmental variability being what it is, the earlier in development we demand skills of kids, the more are going to fall off the apple cart. So there's no question there are some there are many many kids out there who are borderline who are being placed on stimulant medication because uh we've basically been taught I certainly was taught this way that these are relatively benign medications and what's the harm in giving your kid a little bit of an edge and does it really matter given that we all respond to stimulants in one form or another um, does it matter if he really meets criteria for ADHD, if the medicine will help him? But the piece that I'm wondering about your observations of, are we demanding skills of kids earlier and earlier in development? And are there kids who would not have fallen off the apple cart 20 years ago who are falling off the apple cart now, or at least looking more borderline than they would have if our expectations were still the way they ought to be? What do you all think? I was cu- I would be curious as to as to know how many of those diagnoses stem from referrals that are school based versus referrals that are home based because my understanding is that a diagnosis of ADHD requires there to be impairment in multiple environments and so I I would be curious to find out um, 
what where the proportion is, how that pie is sliced in terms of of uh, referrals that are coming from parents who are struggling with their children at home versus uh, schools. Um, well, here's here's one hint, and I, I don't know if this is a good hint or not, but these medications that they're talking about in the article, and there are lots of other medications that are prescribed for hyperactivity and poor impulse control in particular, but the ones they're talking about are medications that tend to be difficult to give a kid later in the day because they're stimulants and they keep the kid up at night. So if I was, if correlation equals causation, which it doesn't, but if I was to draw the logical inference there, it would be that these kids aren't on stimulant medication primarily because of difficulties they're having at home, though that may exist. They are on stimulant medication most often because of difficulties they're having at school because school is the primary beneficiary of the types of medications, stimulants that they're talking about in the article. Not only that, by the way, I think a lot of mental health professionals fudge the it's got to be in multiple environments piece. I think if a kid is not having difficulties with inattention, hyperactivity, and poor impulse control at home significantly, but is having significant difficulties with those features at school, I don't know many mental health professionals who aren't going to make the diagnosis anyways. Well, I think that goes back to the the whole thing about diagnosis and treatment planning. I mean, we have to really be careful because I think that far too often people uh, jump to ADHD when really anxiety is the problem. And I think that that anxiety can look like a lack of focus and and hyperstimulation. Um, But I I also think that... that, uh, um, I, I just think that, that to go back to the curricular piece that you asked about, Ross, you know, I, I think that um, we we only have three options when we're talking about helping kids in school. We either extend the school day, intensify the instruction, or keep it focused during the day, or extend the school year to get, quote, more out of our children. And I think the question is really a huge societal issue. Do Do we, you know, we are not really the leaders in the world anymore for education. And I think that that um if we if we don't evolve we we won't be able to 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 succeed in having our students be competitive. However, we have to be very cautious not to move too fast and accidentally cause a de-evolution by pushing kids too hard the wrong way and causing them to to burn out or not be able to um be creative, which, as I said before, is probably the most important thing that they'll be able to do. So I think that, that as we keep struct- structuring things so that there's enough time for the kids to learn but enough time for them to release, like our school right now is really having a lot of conversations about having more, quote, fun activities at the K2 level because for the last two years we've been working so hard to align the curriculum. So it's natural to kind of swing a group of people one way or the other. Um, but I, I certainly would want to caution that that if the learning environment is fun and engaging, then you see a lot less behavioral challenges. Absolutely, and I think especially taking you know as throughout the years watching things like the hands-on experiments and hands-on activities that exactly. kind of get pushed aside. You know, I think those are the ones that the kids that do struggle with attention or um, engagement, those are where they thrive. And I've definitely over the years seen 
those are the kind of if we have time sort of thing. Um, and with budget cuts as well, those are the kind of programs or things that get uh, the first cut as well. So I, th I think there's a connection for sure. Well, I think it's fascinating that so many societal trends merge together on this issue, but perhaps the most fascinating part of it to me is that the net effect of it is that we have a whole lot more kids being prescribed stimulant medication. And we only have 15 seconds left, so I'll finish the program. That's got to be a commentary on something. What is a commentary on? Anybody's guess. Thank you, Tom. Thank you, Nina. Thank you, Carol. We'll do it again next month. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. you.